But here, on the very rim of known space, justice is a long way away. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian. Joining me, as always, is your co-host, Spaz. Negative. The pattern is full. <laughs> Negative, Ghost Rider. Uh, your co-host, Julie. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and your co-host, Thorsten. Thorsten? Uh-oh. Did we lose Thorsten? Thorsten? He was here a second ago. <laughs> Buddy. Hey, buddy. We'll Where's, come back to him when he yeah. comes back. Uh, sadly, uh, sadly, uh, Jacob can is missing another show. He, uh, he's taking some time off for himself and spending time with his folks and doing, you know, some, some good, some good, uh, some good, uh, stuff for himself. So, uh, he needs that because, for those of us who went to college, it can be a grind. So having a break every now and then is very useful. So, oh, we lost. No, there goes Thorsten. <laughs> Hopefully he'll come back. Technical troubles, I guess. Uh, but my friends, my friends, my lovely friends, we have a guest uh, joining us for, I believe, uh, his second time back on the show. Uh, Fernando Z, the developer of the amazing, amazing, amazing HunterNet Starfighter. Welcome back, Fernando. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, this is the second time. Yeah, I, I, I looked up after my snafu of last week because uh, it was a guest third time, but I didn't know that. I should have known that, but I didn't know that, and I felt really bad about it. Uh, but yeah, we had you on a year and a half ago, roughly. It was like September 2020. And holy crap, has a lot happened since that show. <laughs> Wowie zowie, a lot has happened. Um, so, folks, if you're unaware of what Hernet Starfighter is, it is a... Is it entirely first person or can you do a third person view? I don't remember if there's a third I'm, person. So, literally, this week I'm working on, on the external views. Oh, okay. Uh, so, there will yeah. be a third person. Uh, finally coming to the game. The only external views current technically right now is if you're in spectator mode and you're spectating other people. But, but yeah, there's going to be all sorts of new spec, uh, external views coming. Oh, good. Baz, you were going to say something? Oh, no. I was just saying that was awesome because uh, I like having the third person view too, or at least the option for it. Yeah, it does give you a little bit of extra, you know, spatial situational awareness sometimes um yeah, well, it's, my it's non-combat i'll make that clear because it's still you you I'll, i can go into more detail about what the how the external views are planned to work but one of the key aspects of it is that it's not a traditional third person view like you know you're playing a first person shooter and then you can switch to like an over the shoulder third person shooter style of view where you can play the game either way uh, it's not meant to be that way it means you have the first person view is for when you're actually fighting and shooting at people and in combat and then you have external views just for looking cool or for spectating other people, but they're not meant to be oh, a competitive way to play. Because so dealing with the limitations of the cockpit is, is an internal part of the, the gameplay. I just wanted to uh, ask, since a year and a half ago, I had never even heard of Space Game Junkie. Um, <laughs> I, and I know that's sad, and I'm sorry. It's not sad. No, it's fine. A year and a half ago, I was busy pounding my head against the glass ceiling, which we're, I finally broke through. We're a tiny uh, fish in a big pond, so don't, don't feel um, bad. <laughs> but 
I wanted to know a little bit more about Fernando and CPU Dreams, kind of the executive summary for those of us who just crawled out from under a rock. Okay, sure. Uh, executive summary. So Fernando Z, I'm Fernando, short for Fernando Zapata, and CPU Dreams is my company. I'm an uh, independent game developer. I'm technically, you can say I'm a solo dev, but it's not 100% accurate because I do have uh, people that I'm contracting with for help, and I have a, a, a four startup team members or community members who have helped me quite a bit. Uh, none of them are working on it full time. Um, I've been working on as indie game developer for many years now. I think it's getting close to, you know, I mean, I don't know, don't quote me on it, but it's many years, getting close to a decade. Uh, Hunter and Starfighter has been development. Uh, for over two years, I'm thinking it's, it's already hit three years, but I have to, you know, look at my uh, at my logs, and it's based on an older um, non-simulator space game that I was working on before then. That's sort of the short version. What did you remind us? What did you work on before this? Oh, so I worked on a bunch of uh, indie games, but they never were published. But most of the time, I've been working on um, sort of previous shooters that I never published that I, over time, created the, frame, the framework for Hunter and its Starfighter. So one of the reasons Hunter and its Starfighter has such good netcode is that I've been working on shooter-specific netcode for many years before I ever decided to make a space sim. <laughs> and then before working in, in games, I started during the, the late 90s, during the dot-com era, era, working as a professional programmer. So I've been programming professionally now for several decades, and I've been programming. Uh, I started programming when I was 13, uh, around the same time as I got X-Wing, if I remember correctly. Holy moly. <laughs> Damn. So yeah, I, I'm thinking I've been programming for close to 30 years now. Yeah. See, I, I'm even more impressed than I was before, and now I don't feel so old as like I did when the conversation started. <laughs> no, no, this uh we 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 discovered in our playtest the other day, which is where this footage comes from. We did a playtest on Sunday that quite a few of us are of the older set. <laughs> which which seems true of this whole community. Uh most of it anyway. Um but uh yeah, so um the last time we talked to you uh a couple of years ago, you hadn't done any crowdfunding. The game was a lot more bare bones than it is today, but it was still fantastic. But so much has happened since then. And I want to talk first about the uh, Indiegogo campaign because I, I want to I point folks to it. If you can, go look at the Indiegogo campaign. It's one of the best run campaigns I've ever seen. You had, I mean, I've seen some great campaigns and some garbage campaigns. Running a, a crowdfunding campaign is not easy. It's almost a full-time job in and of itself. And um, and it takes a lot of work. It's not just setting up the page and then sitting for 30 days while the money comes in. No, you have to you have to do updates, you have to answer questions, you know, you, you gotta have material prepared to get to keep momentum going, like video and all this stuff. And you guys did all that. You guys you guys had a great campaign. You had you updated constantly, so I wanted I, I wanted to first congratulate you on a successful uh, Indiegogo campaign, because um, it was great to see it so successful. I was very happy to see that. 
remind us again why you went with Indiegogo and not Kickstarter. I know there's a reason. I just can't remember what it is. Yeah. The so I mean it's it's hard to say. Hold on. <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, if it was the right choice to go the Indiegogo or or Kickstarter, but my thinking at the time after talking to my friends about it is that we weren't trying to we weren't trying to raise the maximum amount of money. The goal for the campaign was simply to give us a little bit of a budget so that as we got as we prepared for Steam early access, we could increase the quality of the game, you know, the quality of the art, the music, and have a little bit of a cushion and fallback. I better let me send a quick message to my aunt, otherwise she's gonna keep uh, <laughs> totally understandable. No. The joys of doing this live. No problem. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't I want to, do- to say hello. <laughs> Sorry, I was cut off from the net. <laughs> For oh. a few minutes. Oh, you hey, you got yeah. cut off, Thorsten. He did. Been, I don't know why. Have you been having? You, you, yeah, you've been having some severe internet issues over there. Yeah, for, for three days now. Uh, that happened never before. But uh, it's those it's those damn life. it's those damn ruskies trying to take your internet away. <laughs> I don't know. hope not. I hope not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, Fernando, we were talking about um, choosing Indiegogo over Kickstarter. Right. So, so yeah, so, so I wasn't sure. If, originally, I was thinking of going with Kickstarter because that's the, you know, it's the obvious default choice. It's the bigger mm-hmm. of the two. But I, I spoke, you know, I have quite a lot of friends who are indie developers, and I told them about my, my plans and my goals and how, you know, this wasn't meant to be a huge campaign. Um, we were never trying to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, or anything like that. And they said that Indiegogo for a smaller campaign might be a better choice because they had, you know, it wasn't all or nothing. So even if you raised a smaller amount, even a small amount would have been useful to us. And they also had the option for Indiegogo in demand, where even if the campaign ended, people could back later. So that's the primary reason. Uh, We were originally going to start with a really small goal. I think it was going to be $10,000. But then we decided, you know, there's enough interest. We're going to go for a goal of, I think it was $15,000. and uh, and we we beat that goal. Um, let me see what it what's what cur- currently it's at uh, eighteen thousand one hundred four euros, and that's you know a euro's worth more than a dollar. Um, and we've had a lot of people claim in demand. We have twenty one in demand reserve pilots, thirty five in demand Vanguard pilots. Those are all people who who backed um, after the campaign came to a close. So oh, yeah, wow. so it's. It did better than we expected, and we have 318 backers on Indiegogo. Plus, we had backers who backed us through our website on PayPal. Um, so, yeah, we were blown away by the support from the community and people who found us during the campaign. And you can still back the game, by the way, folks. Uh, if you back it, you'll get an HIO key for the time being, FYI, because Steam is weird, uh, basically. Yeah, that's another thing we learned after we had started <laughs> That once your campaign ends, you can't give any Steam keys as rewards. I mean, I kind of get it, but it's still just kind of weird. But I get it. Um, it makes sense. Yeah, it 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 does in a weird way. So yeah, you folks, you can still back the game and get an itch key for the time being, and you can still play multiplayer and everything. It's the same version uh, as the Steam version, and you will get a key. Um, you will get a key once uh, it's Steam early access. 
Do you have a plan for when's that, when that's going to happen, by the way? We don't have an exact date yet or mm. when we're going to hit Steam Early Access. We do have a plan. I mean, the idea is I don't, I want to launch in Steam Early Access, you know, obviously the, the sooner the better. But at the same time, I have a minimal threshold at which I feel uh, comfortable with releasing into Steam Early Access, right? And for us, that minimum threshold is we have our first set of three primary locations around Saturn, which is what this new music I was talking to you about uh, to, to you guys earlier about was about, and that we have the very basic open world gameplay loop that we talked about in our campaign or and before our campaign, where you can mine, build, and deploy capital ships. Uh, which you know, there's no mining currently in the game, and the capital ships are static currently. I want to get that working, even in a very bare bones manner, because it's going to hit some of the remaining uh, technical challenges in the game. And I want to get those done before going to Steam Early Access. Because once you're in Steam Early Access, you're going to opening the game to a much broader crowd. And it's going to be even more important not to to slow down and get stuck. So I wouldn't feel comfortable doing Steam Early Access until that is working. Now, how long exactly that's going to take, it's hard to know exactly until I've done it. But I'm hoping, you know, sometime in the first half of this year, I'm able to get that ready for us to go on Steam Early Access. But you know, a lot of the stuff is, is is new, so I can't 100% guarantee you'll be done by that time. Oh, well, that that uh, that makes sense. That seems reasonable. You know, I mean, it's it's only February. Yeah, and some of the important stuff that I wanted to have done before Steam Early Access has already been done. Like, I wanted to have VR ready before we went to Steam Early Access, and that's in. I wanted to have switched to the new rendering engine, which is part of the reason the game looks so much better now than it did before. And that's in because those are foundational things. If you add, if you try to add VR later, then it's a lot more work than adding it now. If you try to switch to the high definition render pipeline later, it's a lot more work than if you do it now. If you try to add the the networking support for mining and capital ships later, it's, you know, et cetera. It's the same thing. So these are like foundational things, either graphically or on the networking side that the rest of the game depends on that I felt needs to be in a real solid state before we can launch on Steam Early Access. I, I got to give you props for having both a VR and non-VR mode. I, th- I think that is the way to go because I mean, VR is great. I haven't tried the game in VR. I apologize for that. I haven't tried it in VR. But I think giving players the option is the best way to go uh, for the most part. Um, no, I totally agree. And it, it affects more than just more things than you think. Like I'm working on external views now. The way external views work in VR is not going to be the same as they're going to work in flat mode. Because in VR, it'd be weird if you have a chase cam of your head is just stuck there. So you want to be looking around. I, I, now, will, I will tell you what, if I may make a side note, I was playing a game in VR, uh, Simple Planes VR. And they had a mode, they had, a, they had an external mode. So I'm like, oh, what is this? I put a button. Next thing I know, I'm in the air behind the plane, nothing underneath me. I'm just floating there behind the plane. I was jarring as F because I have a fear of heights. And so I was like, ah, <laughs> oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I could not push the cycle view button fast enough to get back in the cockpit. It's like, what the what? Oh, okay, okay, it's fine. It's fine. I'm okay. <laughs> so yeah, I totally get what you're saying. <laughs> I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. No, no, in a pancake mode, having um having like a chase cam makes sense. But yeah, you gotta do something that makes sense to you. You gotta have something different for VR. 
And uh, folks, uh, this game is what uh, convinced me to buy a Toby eye tracker uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it works so freaking well in your game, dude. Like just, <laughs> it's amazing how well the Toby eye tracker works in your game. Like, holy crap. Thank you. That was, that was my goal. My goal is to make it as easy to use as possible. Everybody was really happy with how track IR worked. And I wanted Toby to be just plug in and play and be very easy to adjust if you needed to with the minimum amount of fuss. Because when I had originally gone in my Toby, I tried it in one of the major uh, space games and I found it really cumbersome to set up. So that kind of turned me off of it for a while. But then was... once I actually started implementing it in my own game, I realized, wait, this actually works really well. Okay. Uh, was, it, ha- was it elite or was it star citizen? It was elite. It was elite. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Setting up I heard, anything. I heard Star Citizen's a lot better. At least the, that's what the Toby guys told me. But setting up uh, anything, elite, is I think, doesn't have native support. So that's probably why. Oh, for God's sakes. And they're getting rid of VR too, aren't they? I think. I think they're getting rid of VR. For uh, Elite? I think, yeah, I think I they didn't are. I hear that. I think they're getting I they rid of it. they're just not supporting it for new stuff. Oh, maybe. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, I rarely play it. I got it just as a comparison uh, game. Um, so I really don't here's know. What, here's what well. not to do. And then you play Elite. <laughs> sorry. We're we're kind of haters around here. I'm sorry. But, uh, but yeah, with your set with your game, it was so easy to set up and just jump in and play with the damn thing. And it, I, I do need to try it in VR. I know I need to. I just haven't. Um, but yeah, those are those those things right off the bat. Because like when Rebel Galaxy Outlaw came out, everyone was asking him for VR. So many people were asking for VR, and he said no. <laughs> so and there, I think there's only a couple other. There's only like a couple other games that space first person games like this that offer VR. I think. Well, technically, uh, uh, Rebel Galaxy Ella could have offered VR, but the way they have the in cockpit view, technically the cockpit is inside Juno's chest, so her what? body is detached from her arms. What? Yeah, the reason why it doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's the reason why they they have the, the camera trickery that her arms are not attached to her torso and the camera is where her torso would be. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, camera trickery to make it work because the each of the cockpits are individually designed. So they uh, had to design the animations to work with the cockpits being that way. And her arms are not attached to her torso because they have very specific movements per cockpit. Now I'm, now I'm going to have nightmares of Juno being that character <laughs> from the Suicide Squad, you know, that can detaches. Was it which character was that where they could detach their limbs and use them independently? God, I don't remember who that was, but uh, <laughs> that was a freaky ass character. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But yeah, I think what is it? Evercron and Elite. Is that it for first person squadrons? Oh God, I I always forget about squadrons because I hate it so goddamn much. <laughs> I'm sorry. We we've had a lot of people joining us again recently from squadrons. It tends to happen in waves, and I think one of the main reasons this new wave came in contact with Hunternet, even though a lot of people don't hear about us until you know special moments like today on this podcast, for example. Uh, was because I added VR support and they are desperately looking for other games that, hey, what's another game like Squadrons that has VR support? Mm, and yeah. there's not that many. 
Yeah, there there really there really aren't. Uh so yeah, adding how 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 difficult was it to add uh a Toby NVR support to this thing? It was it, it was, th- I mean, they both had their challenges, um, but I think I spent about a month getting the VR ready, getting the VR working. You know, I got it, the basics, like just, just raw working. You can put on your heads and see. I think that took like a day, but it's like figure out all the bugs and work around all the issues and making sure everything worked in VR and just polishing and refining. It took at least a month. And then Toby took less time than VR did, but it still also took almost a month, I think. Because uh, there's always, you know, it's like one thing to get there to 80%, but it's like that last 20% that takes the, the extra time. <laughs> and even for VR, we're still not technically 100% done because one of the big things that I that I plan on adding to the game that you can currently see in sort of a basic mode is the uh, a walkable hanger. And when you have a walkable hanger, you got to make sure that you can walk around it in VR. And walking around around it in VR is going to be very different than walking around it in, you know, with the keyboard and mouse because you have to worry about motion sickness. Yeah. Now I have a VR question. If I play in VR, do do can I use the uh, the wands? Control the ship. Like That's the- a very good question. So one thing that I really pride myself in is providing as much flexibility to the players and what controllers they can use and making mm-hmm. sure that every controller setup is as good as it possibly can be given the limitations of the hardware. So I have keyboard and mouse and joysticks and game pads and all that stuff, but the controllers on VR, they don't use the same API as joysticks or game pads. They have their completely separate API. So I didn't have time to do that during phase one, but in phase two, that's what I'm going to be looking into, letting you use those VR controllers to walk around the hangar either using smooth locomotion or teleport move, and then letting you use them in the, the spaceship itself to fly the spaceship. I haven't promised that it will be supported because maybe it's a lot more work than I think it is. But if it's reasonable, then I will do it, and I'll try to do it now because it's one of those things that you want to commit to it earlier in the project rather than later. Because once you commit to it, then you have to make sure anything you add going forward needs to be you know supporting that as an option. But I think it would be a really nice option because even though this is not a quest game it's a pc vr game you can use uh air link or wireless link whatever they call it and then you could play hunter net on your sofa with your quest 2 uh and i think that would be really chill and amazing experience so i i, I really want to add it i can't 100 percent guarantee it but i think there's a good chance that it will make it into the project yeah the uh, developer for evacron uh legacy recently added a wand control to his game and uh in vr it really makes all the difference um, so if you can get that great, but I get it, it's a, <laughs> you're supporting a lot of stuff here, man. <laughs> you're supporting a lot. Yes. Of stuff. <laughs> so, so yeah, if you can, if you can get that in great, but it, I think it'll be understandable if the, Oh, there's one thing out of a million things. There's one thing you couldn't do. <laughs> like, I think people will understand. One I did try recently was y'all VR. Have you heard of that? N- what? No. What is that? <laughs> Yaw VR is a, a motion platform that was kickstarted uh, that I heard about. It's one of the most popular motion platforms. It's like a thing that moves your chair around, right? Oh. I think it has three degrees of freedom. I thought that'd be really cool. You sit on that with VR, and now not only can you feel like you're there, but you can feel it. So it's like one of those old arcade cabinets where the chair would move and everything when you move the Exactly. Chair. And it can do oh. a full 360-degree spin. You what? know, it can tilt sideways and forward. So imagine if you... If you accelerate forward, you can tilt the chair backwards so you can feel that gravity. 
And if you reverse, you can tilt the chair forward. So you could use the G-forces, and you could really feel the Gs that your pilot is pulling. I think it'd be really cool. Oh, my so God. So I tried it's... looking into that, but I failed. It's expensive. Because there's some, there's some real development issues uh, that are really hard to tackle to get that to work, especially in VR. Uh, with inside-out tracking, like the, the VR headset doesn't expect the platform that you're on to be moving. So how do you know if the, the platform that you're sitting on t- rotates to three, 90 degrees to the left, oh, how is that God. different than you turning your head 90 degrees to the left? It's hard to differentiate the two. And it's, it's expensive, too. I'm, I'm looking at the Yeah, website. and it's very niche, so it's like, uh. <laughs> But even that, I really wanted to support it because, you know. I now, like support hardware. I'm gonna be honest. I thought you said y'all VR like it's a like it's a southern thing, uh, but it's y'all y a y a w VR, and the cheapest model is fifteen hundred and thirty dollars <laughs> for the cheapest. Yeah, and I would have to support it without actually having a device. And I thought, well, if I if I make a mistake with the code and somebody sits on this thing. And it starts moving like crazy. I wouldn't want to be responsible for their trauma. Gotta fling them off the chair. I I don't know, man. Besides that, there's also the fact that if you're too good at it, you'll get uh, summoned to fight the Kodan Armada. (laughs) Exactly. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Very nice. (laughs) The last hundred at Starfighter. Uh Uh, yeah, I, I bet you money that you don't have like one or two people using this. Like, because who's 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 going to buy this? I this is I mean, so, someone who has a dedicated sim pit already would probably go for something like that. Yeah, I, I suppose if there, if there's room enough in the pit for the chair to move around. I guess like it depends on how tightly you, I mean, you made it. You the know? kind of person who would have a sim pit in the first place is uh, probably the kind of person who would go for this. And that's yeah, a, we have people who have spent I would love you know, a lot of money already on their on their hardware. I could see it becoming popular with a very small but still significant subset of the hardcore space sim community. I feel like it's a subset of people who still have a joystick these days, and and uh, it's a it's an even smaller subset of that of uh, people who would use this. Oh, we have a question from the chat. If you have questions in the chat, don't hesitate to ask them. We'll definitely relay them. Uh, are you using a HOTUS while testing? That's a that's an interesting question. What do you I, use I do while use, you're What do you use while you're testing? That's a good question. Yeah, most of the time, since I'm programming, I'm just using the keyboard and mouse that I'm using to program. But then from time to time, I'll pull out my gamepad or I'll pull out my joysticks and test them. Especially when, if I'm doing anything that is influencing changing the flight model or adjusting anything input related. Um, but yeah, when I was originally implementing those features, when I was doing the initial joystick implementation or doing the initial gamepad implementation, uh, then I, I spent a lot of time and I would spend time comparing the two. So I would, I would play against the AI with mouse and keyboard, and then I would switch to joystick and joystick and then compare my accuracy, compare my, the number of kills I would get. And again, try to get everything as close to parity as possible. And then my community, we have players who are very skilled with, with all the, the input devices. So, so, so you, uh, I, I'm just learning more and more about this hands-on stick and stick thing. Like I didn't even know about this until a few years ago, but that's you, you've played, uh, with that before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had one back in Taiwan and I had one in, in Spain as well. Yeah. 
Uh, I would say my preferred setup, and I, we move around a lot and we have to keep my stuff minimal, but my preferred setup, if I wasn't moving around all the time, would be two high-end, you know, VKB uh, joysticks desk-mounted with a pair of VKB rudder pedals with uh, VR. Um, and I think that, that, to me, that's... I mean, I think the other input mechanisms can be just as competitive, but that that I think would be the most immersive, and it has the most. It'd be the most fun to me. Um, I've never used a VKB uh, controller. Are they are they awesome? They're very nice. <laughs> the only thing that's better, like you know, we both love the Microsoft Force Feedback Stick, right? I still have uh, mine back in Austin. Uh, yep. But yep. It's other only, than the, the, it, it, the missing Force Feedback, then those sticks are better. It's only right-handed, though. That's the problem with this thing. It is only for the right hand. They'd never made a left-handed version. Yep. So wait, but two, two sticks is just really nice. I mean, it's especially compared to a keyboard where you only have digital input. Um, having a, a you know a stick with with really nice access control and having pedals, I would use those for forward and back. Um, you know, I like splitting up my inputs across both my hands and my feet. It just it just feels cool and it feels more authentic and it matches what the actual pilot in the game is doing. If you look at the pilot in the cockpit, you'll see he has a stick in his right hand, a stick in his left hand, and he has two pedals uh, on the floor. So I use the pedals for the, for, for throttle control. I would use the pedals personally. You can configure however you want, but I personally feel like the quote unquote best way to fly a six degrees of freedom ship. That's uh, would be forward and back on the pedals. Um, and then on my left hand, up, down, vertical and lateral. The reasoning being when you're flying a degrees Freedom Starfighter, uh, especially one like Hunternet, where your movement is as important to your aim as your rotation is, then it just makes sense to me that if I, if I move my left hand in like a circular motion, then what I'm seeing on the screen would also move in a circular motion. And if I make a circular motion with my right hand, the rotation did also move the nose of my ship in a circular motion. Does that make sense? So by setting it up that way and using the pedals for more forward and back, almost like if it was a car, I think it's the most intuitive way. But we have debates about that in our community all the time. What's the optimal way? Uh, one thing I'm planning on doing is letting you in settings configure your pilot in the game to use his controls the same way you use in real life so they wouldn't map one-to-one. That's a very nice uh, uh, explanation for, for, for it, to be honest. Uh, I always uh, thought about uh, such things and how you, how you would uh, apply uh, the right uh, flight model uh, and, and steering for, for a 60-degree uh, freedom uh, motion. But your explanation is pretty good, actually. Thank you, Thorsten. I've, I've put a lot of thought into this. I've been thinking about it for a long time, and and we've tried lots and lots of things. So yeah, yeah, you see it. So I'm I'm looking at the uh, the question in uh, in on YouTube. Uh, uh, the reason they ask is because in space sim, joysticks and controllers feel like they are an afterthought with mapping. You can map everything in game. It's you can map everything in game, and it's really really good. To do that, yeah, we even have a Hotas mapping speed run on the Hotas subreddit and a video to prove it, <laughs> showing how quickly you can set up your 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 joysticks and pedals and throttles uh, in game uh, so, in real time while testing it as you set it up. 
which yeah, it's it's a big deal, and it's definitely not an afterthought in Hunter Net. I'll tell you what, I'm looking at the Gunfighter Mark III Space Combat Edition uh, VKB stick, and holy crap! I mean, it's three hundred thirty nine dollars for the version I would probably get, but my god, this is gorgeous. Let me put let me put this in here. This is the thing. Because my God, look at that thing. Jeez. Yeah, that I if if I had money to burn, I would be buying two of those today. <laughs> I hear you. There's let me show you probably the most affordable stick they have, which is really popular, is this one. And yeah. the VKB Gladiator next. Um it's like the if you want to go above sort of the common joystick manufacturers like Logitech and Thrustmaster, and you want to get to this like more niche but higher quality stuff, this is a really good uh, joystick. And it's a, you know, it's not quite as expensive as the, the gunfighters. And this video that I posted, they used Hunternet uh, for the game to show off the joysticks. And you can see like the, 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 the like it is a, sec- a subset of people using joystick or these people using these very high-end joysticks, but there is a community around it. Um, and you can see from the production quality of this uh, review for this joystick. Oh God. Yeah. These are, these are beautiful. These are utterly beautiful joysticks. Oh my God. Like if I was going to replace my sidewinder with something, I'd be like, honey, can I, can I, can, can I find $600 in the budget so I can get, (laughs) so I, so I can get, Two of these joysticks. Why do you need two? Well, one for the left hand and one for the right hand. <laughs> I got mine second hand. They were donated to me by one of my players when they upgraded theirs. So oh, I know lucky. how it is. It's expensive. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are expensive. I'm looking at the tabletop versions, and uh, oh Lord, yeah, that's what I would get because they have a they have another one with a longer base, which is interesting. Um. I think I'm going to save up $600. I'm not even kidding. I think I'm going to save up some money for myself and get these. Because in the playtest the other day when we tried, when we were playing around, I swear I think the guy who kicked my ass the most was the one talking about having two joysticks. And um, I am I'm very intrigued by the concept. But again, they don't make the Sidewinder in a left-handed model. <laughs> yep. Which is a damn shame. I wonder if I could like have someone make a 3D printed like left hand version of this and bolt it onto an existing one. That'd be interesting, actually. We have people in our community making their own throttles from by scratch and their own grips <laughs> for joysticks from scratch. So I'm sure there's a way. I wonder. Yeah, because a left handed version of this stick. Ah, oh. oh, that'd be great. I should figure that out. We can combine our two Microsoft force feedback sticks and create a two stick force feedback <laughs> setup. Oh my God. That would I'd be, be the only one in the world. Oh my God. Oh my God. Twin. And then program would be the only six degrees of freedom space in <laughs> that has force feedback on two sticks. <laughs> <laughs> that would be niche. <laughs> but awesome. Oh my God. Uh, Fernando, the other Fernando in the chat, not you, Fernando, another Fernando. Um, asks why two joysticks i know it's essentially a controller but apparently 
for those who have done it, it's an unparalleled. Uh, apparently, it's an unparalleled degree of control. Apparently, I've like I said, I've not done it myself, but those who talk about the hands on stick and stick or hosas, uh, just will not shut up about how great it is. <laughs> well, the easiest way to think about it is like. I mean, if you if you played on a regular gamepad versus on the Switch Joy-Cons, I'm sure you can appreciate the advantage of a regular gamepad, even though I love my Switch Joy-Cons. Yeah. Well, two joysticks are going to be a whole no- The level of accuracy above a, a gamepad is significant. Um, so, yeah. I mean, you're playing if you're playing a game designed specifically for gamepads, then you may not notice that because they, they took that into account when they designed the, the game. But if the game is trying to take get the maximum amount of uh, utility from the hardware, the the joysticks just have that much more to give. I mean, it's like the difference between an an older ball mouse versus a gaming laser mouse today. You know, there's there's hardware difference. Like the, the amount of the, the resolution of the input data coming from the hardware is much higher. Right? The precision of the movement, the lack of a dead zone, the lack of any any noise in your inputs, you know, and on, on top of that with these like high end Gladiator next con- uh, controller, for example, if you like, if you move the joystick all the way down and then let go of it, it doesn't wobble all over places. It's very solid and it really does exactly what you asked it to do. So it's it's a higher precision, higher quality device, like fancy golf clubs, I guess. If if I played golf, which I don't, but I think what I'll do is contact the company and go, hey, if I make some videos out of these things, will you send me a couple? That's what I would do if I were you. <laughs> they obviously, I, they obviously do that for some for some YouTubers. So, mm. well, you know, then. <laughs> uh, something that I wanted to compliment you on, and we haven't spoken about this yet. And first, uh, one little comment: having played Eve Online for six years, I'll never be comfortable in a game unless there's people trying to gang up on me and kill me. But other than that. This is my favorite kind of space game. Strap me into a cockpit. But what you haven't spoken about so far is this wonderful artwork and and the music and especially the sound. I play different weapons just for the sound of hearing it. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about all the sound and especially the wonderful artwork you've got in the game and what you got planned. That's a good question. Thank you. Um so yeah, the the you know I, I I will say that most of the credit for the the sound and the art is really at the hands of the artist, not me, because I am not a visual artist. I'm not an audio guy. I help them with giving you know providing my input and my direction. But I at the end of the day, I try to give them as much freedom as possible since they're the the subject matter experts. And then we as a community and as the startup team, we have sort of a vision for the game of this low tech sci fi universe this game that really immerses you into being a fighter pilot and we want everything uh, to push in that direction. And uh, we're lucky that the guy who does the 3D art, Box Soul, he's one of our top players. Before he started doing the art for the game, he was a fan of the game and a player of the game. And his background is in engineering, mechanical engineering, and his background is in working with actual aircraft in the military. So he has that that appreciation for it as the from the point of view of an artist, from the point of view of a mechanical engineer, and from the point of view of somebody who works on these on real life, you know, military aircraft hardware, right? 
So I think that really helps in when he goes and builds the spaceship for us and giving him a, a level of authenticity and just just the right look. It's hard to, for me to say, and that's the reason I'm adding these external views, even though they're not there for gameplay purposes. They're there so people can really appreciate what the the SF-11 um, fighter looks like, what the SF-13 heavy fighter looks like, and so forth. Uh, the legendary fox, the the names I'm forgetting all of a sudden, the, the, the Super Snapper, all these the different fighters we have in the game, really appreciating them, how they look, uh, by design by somebody who loves the game and who knows their airplanes, right? Um, and then with the music, the same thing. The sound effects were done by Lamaro, who's another community member, who's another host-ass player, uh, by coincidence. And he's the one who did the really crazy like metal music that really makes you want to go in there and you know go to the danger zone. And yeah, he put a lot of effort into making each sound for each gun sound, you know, really meaty and authentic. And it's the current sounds aren't even final. Uh, but yeah, everybody who's worked on the project is just very, very passionate about space games in general and this sort of combat uh, Starfighter-centric game that we're trying to build with HunterNet. Well, you know, it's like when we played this little test here, I felt like somebody had strapped me into the middle, a cockpit in the middle of the Top Gun movie. And even if it's just something, I, in some of the space games, I see asteroids that look like they're two steps above the old asteroid game from the cabinet arcade. But wow, this was just, the artwork was so fantastic and lent, and lended so much to the game. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> That's going to make the guys really happy. We're working on making the asteroid art even better because we have to think about what happens when the asteroids can get mined and can get broken. Uh, what does that mean in terms of the textures? So, yeah, we want the ast- We feel like asteroids are important, right? It's something you're going to be looking a lot in, uh, in a space game, so we want to make it look as good as possible. So we're not even done making them um, shine in the game. And at the same time, performance is also a really big deal for us because uh, we want the game to be accessible to people. Because uh, there's a lot of space sims that have nice art that don't that don't necessarily run that well on more typical computers, and for VR that's particularly important because VR without good performance is just not playable because you get nausea and sick. Uh, what you mentioned currently, uh, the uh, mining of the asteroids, that leads me to another question: Where do you want to go with this game? Do you want to Im- Im- implement a complete uh, trading sim or? Uh, Is it just mining, fighting, and selling the stuff uh, afterwards? Uh, we're definitely not shooting for a complete trading sim, uh, at least definitely not for Steam Early Access, and probably not for the initial release either. Uh, you know, the, the idea is if the game is successful, for this to be a game that we can expand upon and add to over many, many years. Is, you know, I'd rather keep working on this game for as long as possible rather than having to start and work on a completely different game. Um, but it's that's still too far removed from what we're thinking right now so what we're starting out with in terms of mining is com uh, sort of action-based mining where you're mining from a starfighter um and then maybe later on you have npc ships that can take over more heavy duty uh mining or collect the the minerals that you break up from blowing up the asteroids to smaller and smaller pieces so that's the kind of mining we're talking about it's still focused on g-force management and aim except your enemy is now the this big asteroid that's moving and rotating rather than a capital ship or, or an enemy starfighter. And then in terms of the resources, resources matter, but it's not about, okay, I want to mine this asteroid because currently 
iron is is expensive and I want to take it to this location because I can get a good price. It's more I want to mine iron now because we desperately need it to because we just lost our capital, uh, you know, our flagship. And I need to take it to this shipyard because the one that's best defended and most likely to be able to build our new flagship before the enemy, you know, cracks our defenses. It's that kind of mining. You're more mining for the military rather than mining as an individual miner or somebody to, you know, a civilian miner. It's military mining for the war effort. That sounds very interesting. So it's, uh, it's, it's going more into a, like an, uh, a, a full-blown military simulation in, in, in this regard with a strategic uh, component. Yes, I did a whole video before the Indiegogo campaign called HunterNet Beyond the Arena and Into the Universe that talked about this. I'm going to link it in a moment. But yeah, so we want to keep the focus, at least for now, on the military about one military faction against another military faction versus the more the typical setup you're seeing in, in some of the modern space games that people compare us to, like Star Citizen or Elite Dangerous, where you're starting in more as an independent person. The independent person could become a business person or become a civilian or they could become a mercenary or maybe they can go work for the military. But we're really focused on that military experience. Think of it more as joining either the Rebel Alliance or the Empire in X-Wing or TIE Fighter, for example. It's more inspired by those games. Yes, that's pretty much answers the question. Thanks. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah, and I, and I love how ambitious this game is. Even even though, like, I think you could start. I think you could release it today, personally, and like, people would play the hell out of this because just as an arena fighting game, it is so fun. It is. I just can't. I just can't gush enough about how fun this game is. You guys, uh, we have people with many hundreds of hours, I think. And I mean, it's you know, it's it's a very fun game already, and you can get a lot of value out of it. But since this open universe is also a big part of our ambition, I want to get at least the first part of it working before going into Steam early access. Well, that, 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 that makes, makes sense. sense. Yeah, that, that completely makes sense. Um, so how many like in the playtest, we went we went to uh, two different maps and they are so different. Like right now. Uh, on the stream is this uh, kind of gaseous mining platform uh, thing. So, how much work goes into these maps, and how many of our how many maps do you currently have? So, currently in the game, there's four locations. Uh, there's a, a old blue, which is our original location, which is sort of a asteroid field with four capital ships above an Earth-like planet. And then we have this, the, the, the starting location, which is a, an, another asteroid field near Saturn with two capital ships. Then we have uh, Deep Space, which is basically just an empty space location, but with a nice uh, space skybox. And then we have Harvester Station, which is a space station uh, inside of a gas giant. And then we actually have another one more location after that, which is... Um, Black Corridor, which is a, a racing location in the Oort Cloud in these like big ice kind of uh, asteroids. Now, technically, the, those locations are really test locations as, you know, the game is in development. So we're still figuring things out. So they might not actually be in the final game. We might keep uh, some of them in more advanced forms in what I'm calling war games. 
But for the the final game, we're we're actually going to be rethinking locations. And the idea is that any location you're at, especially if you're doing the open world, you'll you'll have a. It's not just a location. Like these locations are very independent. The idea is if I'm in one location, if I look at the skybox, if I go to my nav computer and I say, "Hey, I want to go to this other space station," and you get the little nav indicator on your HUD. And you line up with that nav indicator before you engage, the, you know the 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 faster in line travel or the the faster travel mode. It will line up on that skybox exactly where where that location is, and then you would jump to that location and it would load that location independently. So, so yeah, the current locations are actually technically um, test locations, um, but yeah, we have five of them currently in the game. And the idea is to have many more um, going forward, but launching with our current plans for early access is to launch with three primary locations plus uh, multiple secondary locations. And I'm thinking at least one or two or three of these uh, current test locations might still be available as a separate instance to war games where they're not really part of the open world, but you can still play them with your friends if you just, or by yourself. Now with does that the make o- sense? Yeah, it does. Now, with the open world, because I don't know, I'm going to admit I don't know a lot about it. Is it kind of, is it, is, are we talking kind of a Star Raider style thing where you have a map and something's happening over there and you jump over there to deal with it and then something's happening over there and you jump over there to deal with it? Is that kind of what you're kind of what you're talking about with this open world? I think with Star Raiders, from what I understand, uh, you have the, the world is basically a grid and you can jump to any grid in that world. Uh, is that correct? I, I, I believe so. I, I played more Star Rangers, which is the interactive okay, magic Star Rangers, yeah, Star Rangers. Uh, version from 1995. But basically you had a map and something would be happening somewhere on the map and you jump over there and you deal with it. And you take out the enemy and then, oh, something's happening over there on that part of the map. You jump over there, you deal with it. And then, oh, something's over, happening over there. My base is being attacked. I'm going to jump over there and help out. Is that kind like, is that kind of what's going to be the, the case here? Like kind of a, it's going to, it's going to be a bit different from that. Uh, it is similar in terms of like in star Raiders, there, it's not like elite dangerous or star citizen where it's one continuous world where you can just point your ship in any direction and go in that direction forever. Um, so each individual location is limited to about 1,300 uh, kilometers in diameter. Oh, that's which is quite a lot of space, you know. Oh, take you, say, that's pretty big. <laughs> you know, it's more than enough to hold all of Texas stacked many times high, right? Um, and so, but each location is a limited amount of space. Um, so then, t- to travel between th- those locations, you would have to engage a nav computer and you know basically do a warp like you would in in the old X Wing games or Tie Fighter. But then the idea is that we would you couldn't just warp to anywhere in a grid you would have a, a navigational map and that navigational map would have think of it more like a uh the the map i, I should post a, i had a screenshot but uh the navigational map would have basically dots of interest and then it would have curvy lines connecting them and you would have multiple pathways so think of it if you're thinking of this as a world a world war ii sim instead of a space sim Think of the individual places you could warp to being uh, various battlefields of World War II, like cities, um, important uh, bridges, and so forth. And then there's roads that connect them. So kind of like the node-based travel of like FTL. Kind of like that. Exactly like that. Uh, So yeah, so we're we're starting out with Saturn. 
So you would have multiple locations around Saturn, maybe one, you know, imagine a ring around Saturn. Well, there's the ring itself. Imagine you have some location that's like on one edge of Saturn, and then another, there's several locations as you go travel around the ring, and to get to the dark side of Saturn currently, it would be another location. And so you literally have a network of, of warp roads that would take you all the way around uh, Saturn. And sometimes you would be closer to the actual rings of Saturn. I mean, that's where you would do some mining. Sometimes you might be closer to the surface of Saturn. It might be a place where you're within the atmosphere, like in that Harvester Station map and so forth. Or maybe another time, another set of nodes would take you to one of the, the moons of Saturn. Uh, but you're constrained by that, those locations that we make available and the paths between those locations. And that creates sort of a geometry to space beyond the local geometry. So you can, by controlling individual nodes in that network of locations, you can prevent access to the enemy, make it harder for them to attack. Some places can be shorter, but more dangerous. And we can add additional nodes and pathways between them over time. Um, yeah, Thorsten, Wing Commander Armada, I think is another good Example, it had kind of a similar kind of node-based map you would move around to deal with the Karathi. So uh, I just posted a screenshot um, in the stream chat for you guys to see an example of what I'm, I was talking about. So I could see this working as a kind of, oh. depending on the ship that you're in, so maybe some ships have a better jump range. If the nodes in between are ones you control, then you could actually jump further along than Ooh. if they were held by the enemy. So exactly, maybe, that's the kind of thing. That, like, yeah, maybe that presence that the presence of enemies being there acts as an interdiction to your safe jump travel. Oh, like a buff. exactly. Oh, like a buff. So if you if you own that node, you kind of get a buff out of it, basically. Well, maybe it's it's just the fact that you can go and cruise because you don't have to stop. Hmm. Yeah, those are the kind of mechanics we've, we've talked about. And just like with the combat where we iterated with the community to figure out exactly how our combat should be, it's the same thing with these sort of higher level mechanics, like having to do with travel, the use of fuel, right? Because we're starting out with just uh, two to three basic resources. Um, in this screenshot, you can see we had um, ice, water, metals, and hydrogen fuel. So fuel is important because that determines how far you can travel. Also, the carriers is a big part of the game. These are carrier-born fighters, just like the ones in Above and Beyond, right? Uh, we were talking about earlier, or in Battlestar Galactica, another inspiration for the game. Um, so you want to give people reason why you would dock with a carrier and then have the carrier do the traveling instead of you doing the traveling yourself. Conversely, there's other times, like with the example Spaz gave could be a good example of that, where you maybe want to have a special fighter that goes and scouts ahead and maybe he opens up nodes to make it easier for the rest of your fleet to travel there or to, you know, use less fuel or to make it harder for people to, you know, X-Wing or TIE Fighter had those, those in interdiction uh, Star Destroyers, for example, that would stop people from, you know, force them out of hyperspace. So those kind of mechanics where you're creating these front lines in space and choke points and reasons to take a different route instead of just a direct line. Uh, from point A to point B is the kind of mechanics we want to build on top of this uh, sort of node-based system that we're using. Damn, that sounds great. So you have kind of a moving front uh, that you can, because it's a war going on, and you're basically kind of simulating. So is this kind of like island hopping in the, in the Pacific, kind of, sort of? 
in World it War II. It is a little bit like that. And the, oh. the Pacific Theater has also been a big inspiration. Oh, man. Uh, uh, that, that, that sounds so freaking great. Because there aren't a lot of, like, space... Like, a lot of the militaristic space combat games don't get into, like, the larger scope of the war. It's basically like, I have to go fight this patrol, you know, and that's it. Um, I can only think of one or two that get into like the larger scope of, Oh, we need to control this sector. And yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that, that makes me even more excited for this game is that you're kind of kind of kind of have a war going on. That Exactly. Exactly. That's the idea. It's like you, you want to people, you know, the game is supposed to be easy to get into. So we're simulating war, but we're, we want to focus on the level that people understand and people understand world war two, like classic objectives. Like why do you want to hold the bridge? Why are you trying to destroy this factory? Uh, so when you're having these missions, the same kind of missions you would see again in X-Wing or TIE Fighter, we want it to come dynamically out of this open world system. Like, okay, I want to take this location because if I take that location, that you know denies the enemy X resource or X movement opportunity. And it makes sense. You know, it, it's, it's not looking in some, you know, going back to like the trading simulation, I've never really been into those trading simulation games and I have nothing against them. But in Hunter and it, I really wanted the focus to be more at this, this war level and the resources is, is at this fighting over resources, um, you know, escorting resources, all those kind of missions that the mission makers in the X-Wing series would make in a way that they did a really good job. They made it feel, that's what, yeah. what I really love about X-Wing. They made it feel like you were taking part in a real war, yeah. much more so than the movies. Right. Uh, and I want to bring that over to Hunternet, but into the open world gameplay where the, 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 the players are carrying out the two sides of this big space war. So, what, so it sounds extremely great. Will this be multiplayer? O- this war be multiplayer only or will it be single player as well? It's this. So. So the current stuff in the game, as you know, is all multiplayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can technically play by yourself if you join a server. Nobody's on there. This open world stuff is multiplayer only, although there is a very strong um, NPC AI faction because the players will only be controlling the Starfighter class ships. But everything else, like the the manned guns on the space station, uh, the capital ships of various sizes that you'll be able to build. And then over time, I want to add more and more types of ships to the fleet. Like you could see, you know, uh, mining ships or transport resource ships that are, you know, hauling stuff from point A to point B. Those would all be controlled by NPC AI. So there could be a possibility where if you wanted to, you could make a private instance and, and, and maybe experience that. But that's not initially part of the plans. What we're uh, planning in terms of private instances is more the kind of arena-based gameplay we have right now. So you want to play racing by yourself or racing with just uh, you know the podcast guys. You could do that. But the open world is one open world for the whole planet Earth. Um, that's the immediate goal anyways. Now, is it going to be like you log into the server and is it going to be like a role playing thing where I'm a member of this squadron? And when I log in, this is where my carrier is and this is the mission my squadron has been given and I'm going to fly it because I am logged in. Is that is that like how is that how it's going to be played out? It's not really like a role playing game, but orgs, uh, organizations and squadrons is a very important thing that we're going to be focusing on. So the idea is there's two there's two factions the the UCS the United Colonies of Soul and all the ships you currently play in the game are from that faction United Colonies of Soul and there's a second faction and there's information about this on our website too by the way if you guys want to see more 
Um, and there's a second faction called the Earth Alliance. And it's a very classic, like, inner inner sphere versus outer colonies <laughs> sort of sci-fi setup, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you would pick one of those two factions to join. And then within those factions, the players are free to create their own organizations, big or small. Uh, but you would all, regardless of whether or not you were playing in a, as an organization of one, organization of two, four, you know, 10, 20, whatever it is, you're still part of the military faction that you joined. And that military faction is still backing you up, giving you resources, giving your ships. So you're not, it's not all financed out of your own back pocket, right? It's, it's, it's financed by the, the war effort. But we want to give players the ability to form their own sort of, you know, their, their own wild cars in, in the game or even bigger <laughs> factions uh, within the game to help them coordinate uh, and play better as a group. But in terms of missions, the missions definitely wouldn't be like some NPC giving you a mission. It would be you looking at the state of the of the universe and saying, okay, we need help. You, know, you look at a, in the hangar, you might be look, looking at a version of this Saturn cluster map and note you can look at the stats and see, okay, this place needs this. It needs, it needs more, min, more, uh, more hydrogen fuel. This place needs more iron. Or this place needs some, uh, somebody to scout to deploy some relays to open up this travel network or make travel from point A to point B cheaper. So you would look and see what was necessary and then decide out of all the things that could help your faction uh, do better. Take that as your mission uh, rather than, you know, having a preset mission assigned to you. And if you were working as part of an org, then your org can have your own ships and your own capital ships that would have your org insignia on it. And those could be deployed in specific locations. And the game would remember where you were last when you disconnected from the open world. And you as an org could decide to do things as a group, because if you work together as a group, then you can carry out. You can be more effective than if you did things by yourself. But again, it's it's more freeform rather than NPCs telling you what to do. I want to change the direction of the whole interview in, in, uh, into something we talked about in the in the chat, and that is the flight model. And that was a real surprise for me as I as, as I first played the game. Uh, I didn't expect such a good flight model. Uh, and as the uh, other Fernando in, in the chat pointed out, it's extremely hard to do that. How did you how did you come up with it, and uh, uh, how long did you think about that? I, I really I really can, can only uh, appreciate what you what you what you did there. It's it's really great. Yeah, thank thank you, Source. I really appreciate that. And it's it's definitely one of the highlights of the game, and it's one of the things that kept people coming to the game even back when it looked. You know, right now today we get praise about how the game looks and how it sounds. But let me tell you, when it first started, it was basically a bunch of you know off the shelf uh, models and sound effects from the Unity Asset Store because I'm not an artist, right? But people look past that, even coming from games as beautiful as Star Citizen, because they played the flight model and it felt great. Now, why is the flight model as good as it is? Sometimes I think that the reason HunterNet is the way it is really goes back to almost my entire lifespan because what sort of has gone into it comes from, you know, like I said, when I first started programming, what was I playing? X-Wing. What kind of games was I playing as a kid? X-Wing, TIE Fighter, uh, World War I flight sims, World War II flight sims. And that went on my whole lifespan my whole lifespan that's the, the number one and my most favorite genre has always been air combat and space combat games and it's specifically simulator ones with you know with nice fly models so 
I, I spend a lot of time playing those games, and when I when I had time to play other games, I spent most of my time playing IL-2 Sturmavik, a World War II flight sim, and I used to do training sessions for my squad mates. My favorite book back then was uh, Air Combat Tactics and Maneuvering, written by a, a Navy Top Gun pilot. Oh, that, you know, that, I've flown planes in, in real is, life. That book is amazing. If any of you haven't read that, and you have any interest at all in fighter combat, space or otherwise, read that book. Oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, and even it carries on even to, and it is a great book. I'll, I should post a link about it earlier. But and in real life, I love flying kites, uh, stunt kites, quadcopters, you know, remote control airplanes, anything that flies. I want to get my hands on it. And and in the before I did Hunter and Starfighter, I was working in a more imaginative game that wasn't going in a simulation director. Not because I didn't love sim games, but because simply at that time, I didn't think I could even compete in the simulation sphere because there was all these big bigger games doing it. So I say, okay, look, they have these huge Kickstarters. I'm not going to touch that. I'm going to work on something more niche, uh, more different. But even then, when I was working on a more arcade-based game, the the previous game before Hunter and Starfighter had like five or six different flight models. And everything from a quadcopter flight model to an aircraft flight model to a satellite imaginary flight model. So I, I have had so much experience uh just creating flight models and playtesting them and iterating them with the community that all that sort of came together um, when I did the Hunter and Starfighter model. And I think that's why, you know, so there's not one thing, but it's many, many, many things over many, many years that led to it being what it is today. Ah, great. That explains many, many things. Yeah, it's really it's really fascinating how this game is many, many. I mean, you've, you've said you've worked on it specifically for three years, but it sounds like it's been almost decades in the making. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in some ways it is, I mean, it's based on ideas that go back decades in the past. Yeah. And it's using experience that I've gained over decades. I mean, like I used to make uh, game modes in IELTS system for my, for my squad mates to play. Right. So I was thinking about, Isle to Sturmavik is sort of a, a vehicle for making gameplay. And I always thought when I was playing Isle to Sturmavik, which is a World War II flight sim, uh, what would it be if you could make a new, fl a new uh, flying sim, but you weren't beholden to the reality of World War II? I always say that early World War II, for me, is like the best era of accidental good game design in air <laughs> combat. And it's amazing how good it is, given those machines were just meant to like kill the other guy as efficiently as possible. Not, it wasn't about being fair and balanced, right? <laughs> that's a so, great way to look at it. That's oh my god, that's amazing. That's probably so freaking true. <laughs> but it's true, right? I mean, it's part of the reason why X Wing, I think, was so good because he, um, Larry Holland, had been making World War II games, and he and he used that as a part of his foundation to make an awesome space game. Uh, based on the lessons you learn from playing the best air combat game that the real world has given us. <laughs> but they made great World War II fi uh, fighting games even before X-Wing and TIE Fighter. Like, yeah, I mean, se Secret, was it Secret, Secret Weapons of the Roof Law yeah, was they, based on their same engine and all, a bunch of other games. Yeah, there were three. There were three, I think they made three games before X-Wing. It was uh, Their Finest Hour, which is a Battle of Britain game. There was um, the Thunder something Hawks. 
Battlehawks uh, Battle 1942. Thank yeah, you. Battlehawks Battle 1942. And then, and then the really the, the best of the three was Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe. Um, there so. was also a quote from Holland. I mean, because I really admired the guy just as a fan of his games, but also oh, God, reading, yeah. reading like the backstory where he talked about how um, in one interview they asked him, like, you know, because it's a, X-Wing is a sim. These games are sims, but they're, his sims are different. They're not what I would call like rivet counting sims. No. Or like uber nerd sims. And I can get uber nerdy when I am a nerd, but he really like dialed in on like, he wanted to give the players that experience of being that fighter pilot, yes. of getting the experience that he got by reading like the, the biographies and the stories that these fighter pilots wrote later. Yeah, coming in from that perspective, and I think it really shows in his games. He's absolutely right. I have a friend who used to write the flight sim column for gaming magazines back in the '90s, and he basically calls it a pilot sim. The, the distinction a pilot sim versus a plane sim, and in those older sims like X Wing, Tie Fighter, Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, even things up to like European Air War, uh, it was a pilot sim. You're 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 part of a big you're a cog in a big functioning machine, you know, doing these things. And and X Wing and TIE Fire both did that well because there were some missions where you were scanning, you know, uh you were scanning for you for smugglers. You, you it wasn't all combat all the time and you didn't need to go through a twenty minute uh startup sequence to start up your damn TIE Fighter. <laughs> you know. But it made you feel part of something bigger. And and now I worry that a lot of Sims are worry, are much more plane based, like DCS and whatnot, which again is why your game is such a breath breath of fresh air because clearly you're harkening back to that more uh, pilot sim of this doesn't have to be super realistic; it has to be fun and give the pilot the player that that rush of adrenaline that a real pilot might get without worrying about their fuel pressure and things like that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. Um, so yeah, that's another reason I think this game is great. Cause it really harkens back to those bygone days where developers really did focus more on a pilot sim and rather than a, than a plane sim. And yep. uh, that's exactly what I think it's, it's, it's more, it's the focus is on the pilot. I mean, the airplanes, the, sh- the ships obviously matter and the X wings are cool and you know, all the world war two planes are cool, but it's not DCS. It's not, it's not, you know, one of those driving, you know, hardcore racing games where it's, it's really is about the, the cars and the machines and right. these little small little details. It's, it's a bit, it's more bigger picture. And that's another reason why those orgs and be able to fly with your squad mates. And, you know, like right now there's a basic, uh, rating system the game but my idea is for the open world and for the game in general is to bring back the the x-wing style you can you know look at your uniform and see all your medals that you've earned so that makes you know those little touches like that that makes you feel like a real pilot um fighting in the real war um those special touches i i really want to bring in to me that's more important than you know giving you the ability to adjust the the radiator <laughs> flaps on your oh, on God. your on your engine cowling, right? Yeah. See, I have no interest in any of that. Like none. Like I, my, the A ten is my favorite airplane ever. Like I love the A ten, but I I I loaded up DCS A ten once, and I was like, no, <laughs> I, I'm going to go back to A ten Cuba. 
You know, I'm just going to go back to a much more fun, <laughs> much more interesting game than I don't want to spend 30 minutes just figuring out which but which buttons to push. Exactly, because uh, what I liked about the modern space games is like they're more dynamic uh, flight models that had more unique elements. Like I love like in IL-2, I'm playing the P-39 Air Cobra and it had really unique stall mechanics and it was really dangerous to get out of once you got into a spin. And that was cool because it was not about new buttons, new pilot checklists. It was about getting to learn how the Air Cobra flew and knowing how to move your joystick to get out of it and how to prevent that thing from spinning out of control. That's fun. That is simulation based, but it's not this like small minutia that doesn't matter, right? When you're reading somebody's biography about being a P-39 air combat pilot in World War II, they're going to talk about how crazy those it was to get out of a, of a flat spin, not about the details of how to adjust the cowling or the air pressure know, or whatever. I know. I've read, <laughs> I have read a lot of those books too. And, and I think IL-2 might've been one of the last great Sims to try and mix both the high fidelity gameplay with the pilot based gameplay and be pretty successful at it. Um, now, now all the flight sims seem to be, I could rant about this for days. They're all, <laughs> <laughs> the good old microprose. Oh God! Type type of, of game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the good old sim where you're a pilot in a war, rather than oh, I have to figure out which switch to pull. And there's no war going on. I'm sorry, I could rant about that forever. I won't. <laughs> it's the war know, against the, the cockpit. <laughs> the first time I played one of those games, and it was like this World War Two plane. Even so, it was like. I don't need to know how to balance the fuel mixture. I was lost. I crashed the plane in the first five <laughs> minutes and all the other players started making fun of me. And I said, there, there was like no tutorial and you're asking me to learn how to fly a Spitfire. And, um, this game is really, it's just, it was all about the fun. And I appreciate the fact that there isn't so much feature creep like other people who have just mentioned <laughs> in the, that it will probably never it. come out and as one of my developer friends said gee i'd like to be able to play that before i retire and he's in his 40s and uh, also i want a comment i want to make is that i really enjoyed the what yeah i've heard of the music I really enjoyed it, and have you considered making it available separately from the game? Yes, yes. Uh, so the the current metal music uh, from Lamaro, which is really amazing, I think almost all, if not all, his tracks are available on his SoundCloud, so people can you know listen to them there. And I don't know if SoundCloud lets you download them. And then the new music, uh, shout out to Will Dodson, who's our composer. Uh, that music will most likely be made available uh, as an OST from us and also through him. So there'll be multiple ways to get access to the the game music uh, other than just inside the game itself. Cause you know, I think it's pretty, pretty amazing music uh, just uh, as music. It is. I'd like to play it in the background and other things I, I play. I agree. But wh one thing I wanted to, to say uh, that I think really harks what we're talking about to me is like landing. Like to me, land, you know, takeoff and landing is really important in, in space, in uh, air combat games, right? And making that fun and challenging is interesting. Uh, so in space games, a lot of space games, they'll put a lot of emphasis on things like you need a button to, to tell it that you need to land and to tell it that, you know, which landing pad you want to go to and 
engage landing mode and this and that, you know, and it can be really complicated to figure out how the heck to land. In Hunternet, you just you just fly to the ship and you just land. There's no button. But so it's from one point of view, well, that's really simple. There's nothing to it. But what makes landing fun in Hunternet is that you have to do it quickly and there's no safe zone and you need to come to complete stop. And how many times have I like landed on the wrong capital ship because the heat of war, I got disoriented or how many times did I kill myself trying to land because, you know, I was flying with flight assist off and I forgot to hit the space brake to slow down. To me, that's what's fun about landing um, in a space game, just like it was in World War II games. The, the fun is like, you know, it's not easy to land an airplane and it's hard to land an airplane when you're being attacked. Um, I think it's a good, good example of that sort of philosophy. Landing in Hunter is really fun, even though in many ways it's pretty simple. I also, I have to say I've, I appreciate there are some games where you don't have to land at all, like uh, Strike Fighters 2. Once you do your mission, you hit escape, and you're done. It's just really nice <laughs> if you want to just fly real quick, do a thing, and not have to worry about flying back. Really, really nice for a short session, <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> but yeah, you, you, landing in this game is, is, is enough of a challenge. It's not too much of a challenge. Uh, I think coming to a stop is what I have the biggest problem with. <laughs> you gotta, well, you're going, the thing is when you're running back home, you're often like going as fast as possible and it can be easy to misjudge <laughs> how much time you need to stop. I, uh, I always think of that, uh, that battle landing in BSG where they're landing. Oh yeah. That's, that was a classic one. The quick landing. Yeah. Where they're just pulling in with their struts down, scratch, scratch, scratch. <laughs> well, and landing is about, is going to be getting more challenging and more exciting because one of the things I did before the, the Indiegogo Kickstarter is I did some prototypes to get a better feeling of how hard it would be to add, you know, the capital ship physics and the supporting multiple independent locations in a single server. So we could do the, the open world we were talking about. But one of the things I did is I took one of the capital ships in game, added some physics to it and had it spin and then try to land while it was spinning. Oh God. And wow, that was so much fun. You're like using, you know, first you, it was like an interstellar moment, but in Hunternet where you, you match its rotation so that it's still, but the skybox now is spinning and then try to like get on there and come to a stop. Imagine doing that in game, landing on a moving carrier because that carrier has taken damage and, you know, now the, the thrusters are broken or whatever. And doing that while the carrier is trying to defend itself and somebody's trying to attack you and do it as quickly as possible. So <laughs> God damn. that is what makes me very excited. Uh, yeah, no, there's a lot. Folks, if you if you haven't gotten it by now, we're there's a lot to be excited about with this game. <laughs> but we should start wrapping up. Does anyone have any final points they wanted to make or final questions before we start wrapping up? Uh, one thing that I wasn't clear on as far as when it finally does go into early access, what kind of price range uh, are we talking about? So the the price that we're we're planning on launching Steam Early Access is, I don't remember, it's $29.99 or $29.90, whatever the standard dot something in in uh is on steam that's that's the you know we might start with the we might have a, a launch discount uh that's not something we've decided yet but that's sort of like the regular non-discounted price that we're we're aiming for on steam that's why the the current price on indiegogo to play the game now is 30 dollars, which is the same as like the mm. the launch price uh, like 29.99 yeah, twenty nine ninety nine. You know, yeah. something about that that one penny changes things. <laughs> it really does. But yeah, 
if you do offer a launch discount, you'll probably, and you put it in the, the impulse zone, which I think is $20 or less, uh, for like a launch discount, you'll probably get quite a few people jumping in from jump. Um, if you do some kind of launch discount. Yeah. We wanted to pick a price that we felt was fair, but also that left us room to discount without, you know, you know, cutting into the profits too much. Um, Oh, I think thirty dollars is a, is a great price point for this game. Honestly, for for all you get and all you're going to get, yeah, thirty dollars is is a fantastic price point for this game. Hundred uh, percent. Just a quick question on that: um, Was there a a plan to uh, to change the price at full release, or has that not been decided yet? I never I hadn't really thought about that. I wasn't thinking of changing the price on full release. We will, One thing we did talk about, which is something for the future, is like the game is just a single purchase. There's no subscription fees. There's nothing like that. But let's say the game goes through Steam Early Access and releases, and now it's like we do post-release support, right, which I want to keep supporting the game for many, many years to come. At some point, we want to we, we want to do major expansions. We have to decide, like, how do we do it in a way it doesn't split up the community, but also... Uh, you know, because once you've reached whatever your market is for people who want to play this kind of game, if there's no way to get additional funding from them, there's no way to fund additional development. With um, So that's one thing that we need to figure out in the future. If the game is a big success, if it's not a big success, then it's not something we have to figure out. Probably the most, to me, the, probably the, the way to do it might be just with DLCs, um, you know, where right, whenever you do big, chunky DLCs game. where you're adding a major expansion or something yeah. like that. I don't know if you guys have any opinion, like Elite Dangerous, they did Horizons and then Odyssey. Is that the best way to do it? Is there some other way to do it? But, you know, I do want to eventually expand the game. Um, You know, like one thing that I could see happening in the future is giving you an option to uh, retire from the military and go civilian or go, um, Go you know, be a, a freelancer. Right. And that would be a major additional addition to the game. Right, but if there's no way to monetize it, it could be hard to to support it. So. I could see that being an expansion, like the, the yeah, yeah. Oh, that really sounds great. Yeah, I could see that being an expansion, like the yeah. the retirement expansion. Do you become like a civilian? Do you become a merc and do your own thing? That could totally be an expansion, like, or you could become a like if you wanted to expand racing into its own thing. That could be an expansion where you're like doing tournaments and things. You know, exactly. racing. Yeah, that could be an expansion. Yeah, yeah, can, yeah, yeah. That could be an expansion, but also new areas as well. Like, like say you, you know, you want to make Earth an expansion or something like that. Like that could be maybe a slightly cheaper piece of DLC, so you don't uh, fracture the community too much. Something like that, because that all takes work and effort, you know, to make like another planet with exactly. all these things to do. So it would make sense. I, I think the way that I see it doing, I the, the way that I, I see it best working out for a lot of people is like they do a lot of free updates that updates the base game, but then they also do DLC that adds a lot of content as well. Um, that adds new and areas they simultaneously. And new, yeah, exactly. They, do, they they release they release free content that goes along with uh, whatever expansion paid expansion that they're they're putting out, and the idea with that is. That either way, whether or not you are buying the new expansion, you're getting more content. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that oh. too. It's like, what, what prompted my question, I should I should add, is that I've often seen on early access pages that the price may change depending on how much content is added between the early access release and full release. And yeah. so that could justify, depending on how much is added, you know, a price rate, a price increase of say ten bucks, depending on what is added, or five bucks increase at full release. So the people who bought in early will still be paying less than will still have been have paid less than those who buy in a little bit later. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Spaz. Um, when you know, we want, like I said, that we really want to expand the game, keep it. Uh, self-funded so they can fund additional development but we also want to be treated community nicely and and respectfully so we always want to include some you know free updates uh, and have expansions i think that's the probably the best way to do it and then in terms of pricing the way we came up with the initial pricing is we simply we looked at all the big space games and indie space games on steam kind of get an idea of like the level of value that they provide and see well where do we fit in this universe of games what where, and where do we think we can hit when we go to Steam Early Access and what feels reasonable? We didn't want to be overly egotistical and, you know, overvalue our game. Oh, our game is a $60 game, which it clearly isn't. We, but we also didn't want to undershoot ourselves and, and, like, give people the wrong impression and say, oh, this is just like a $10 game, right? It's a cheap game. So that's how we figured it out. So sort of like the market determined the price for us, the Steam market. And if we make a lot of progress between Steam Early Access and we and the game becomes bigger and better than what we originally thought we were going to have by the time we got off Steam Early Access, then we, that might cause us to reevaluate it because we want the price to, for the average gamer who's familiar with space games or familiar with Steam pricing, they see the price, whether it's on discount or not, they say, okay, yeah, that is a, that's, a, that's what I would expect if I had to do like the price is right for the game. Indeed. Yeah. 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 And, and like I said, $30. For, for the amount of content you can already have that you already have and that you're going to eventually implement seems very reasonable, you know, to me. Um, so that seems like a really good price point, especially with all the work you're putting into this. You, you know, know, you mentioned racing and you could always do what the Nintendo Corporation did. They say, well, okay, we're going to release 48 tracks over a period of two years. <laughs> And, uh, oh man, the tracks, right? <laughs> but it's only 25 bucks for those 40 tracks, which is not bad, really. No, it's not. And it, it continues to keep the, the thing is, is it continues to keep interest in the game. It's not that expensive and they're not releasing them all at once. Yeah. And so that's why it's over a period of two years i haven't gotten uh, yeah. if Sorry, you do ahead. racing i'll be the first one to sign up we already have racing julie and i love the mario kart series and you can do combat racing and hunting it we've done it with with 16 people at the same time it's fun and it's hella fun it's so and i've fun. had even though the racing is very limited right now it's just one racetrack i've had many many people saying this is the best space racing experience i've had in any game yeah including people who have thousands of hours in other space racing games of which there are not many <laughs> there are not many. There are not many. <laughs> and if anybody ever complained about your price point, just tell them if you knew what it takes to develop a game like this without double mortgaging your house, yeah. you wouldn't complain. See, and 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 to wrap up, that's what we're going to talk about next week is is helping gamers understand that. <laughs> because 
because yeah, that's um, a good service. That's, that's, that's community service right there. Yeah, because so many gamers don't feel, uh, don't understand how much work goes into a game. Like, there's a game I love. I'll just use this as an example to wrap up. Uh, called Cyrilim. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's kind of like a roguelike Pokemon style game, and this it came out on Steam a little while ago, and they just released an Android version. And people are complaining on their Steam forums about why they're not getting the Android version for free. Why do I have to pay $10 for this again? And it's like, do you not understand how much work goes into these things? How much time goes into these things? Do, do you not feel their value, their their effort is not worth value? It has no value at all? So, so that's what we're going to talk about next week. Um, so uh, $30 is... I think a steal for the, for what you're going to get with this game. Honestly, the VR support, the Toby support, the ease of, um, the, the, the ease of, uh, configure controls, which might be my favorite thing about it. Uh, the varied game modes that are already there, the beautiful maps, the wonderful music, uh, Fernando, if you didn't understand, I, I love your game and I just could not oh, st- stop gushing about it. It really is one of, might be my most anticipated game. Like maybe this and like star sector, like top of my list. Um, so, uh, yeah, right. Luke. So, uh, folks, if, 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 if you haven't backed, um, hundred starfighter yet, keep an eye out for it. You can either back it now, uh, and you'll get an HIO key and, um, you'll get a steam key once it comes to steam later this year, hopefully later this year. Um, but you can, the, the HIO version is pretty much the same version. So you could play with other people on the servers or by yourself with bots. If there's no one on the server, the game has pretty good bots, not as good as humans, but pretty good, pretty good bots. Um, and it is definitely worth your time. I think I'm going to say this and there's no pressure, Fernando, but I think this could be the best space fighter dog fighter since free space Two. I think if you keep going in the direction you're going, this will probably usurp Free Space Two, in my opinion. Well, wow, that's that's a huge compliment. I've pl- I've played Free Space Two, and I was so impressed by that game. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not kidding. I th- I think with what you already have, you could like it. Like the only thing that Free Space Two might have over you is a single player campaign, which you're not planning anyway. Um, but in terms of in terms of like the feel of dog fighting in space, few games have come close to this. And I think again, you might usurp free space two is the best of the bunch in my opinion. Um, Thank you, Brian. Thank you. So I mean, um, my dream game and the focus of my, my professional life really. Yeah. And your, and, and your wife helps out and she's great. Believer, yeah. She's a huge help. So she's great also. So folks, if you're interested uh, was it hundrednet.gg? Is that the website? Yep, hundrednet.gg. Right. Got our new uh, domain. Yeah, you can go to hundrednet.gg and you can read more about the game, see all the videos Fernando makes, back it. Uh, he's got a very active and very pleasant uh, Discord server, very positive over there. Uh, really great community. They do weekly play tests where you can play with people regularly. Um, it's just a really great, we can't gush about this game enough. Um, so next week on the show, we hinted at this. We're going to talk about our frustration in gamers being so entitled, not understanding 
how much work goes into a game and the value of that work, uh, how it's driven people out of the industry entirely, which we're still angry about. That's what we're going to talk about next week because we're very passionate about it and we hope we can get the message out there to some people that these games are worth the money that you spend on them. A lot of them are. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them. Uh, but Fernando, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your... Uh, it's evening there, right? Where you are? It's evening? Yep, 8.32. Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy to join this show. I love the Space Game Junkie podcast. Oh, we'll definitely have you back. We'll definitely have you back at least one or two more times. Uh, absolutely. We, we love having developers back as they go through early access, learning about the process, um, from getting from an alpha to 1.0. We love seeing how the sausage is made. And uh, there's a lot of good sausage in this game, people. It's a really good pizza. So <laughs> that was a really stupid joke. I apologize for that. But uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, they had a very active chat today. Thank you, everyone, in the chat for uh, your questions and your comments. Very active chat today. It was great. And we'll see you back here tomorrow with, uh, I forget the name of the game. And we'll see you back here next week for a topic show. Have a great day and week, everyone. Be safe. Be well. Bye-bye.